Are you familiar with the events of August 9, 1969? One of Hollywood's most infamous and gruesome murders occurred that night. The murder of five people took place in a lovely 1940s European-style farmhouse located in Benedict Canyon in Los Angeles, California. Chances are, no matter when you were born, you might recall the tragic and horrific murder of Sharon Tate and her friends in the Hollywood Hills. So what really happened that night, and why? What became of the property afterward? Welcome to Nightmare Houses. The property was developed in September 1941. The Los Angeles Times reported an investment banker, M.M. Landon, purchased a six-room residence for $15,000. Permits for Lot 23 indicate a residence and garage built on that site at 10,050 Cielo Drive. Designed by architect Robert Byrd, known for his modern indoor-outdoor style, the residence resembled an early 19th century European-style farmhouse. The hillside structure faced east and featured stone fireplaces, beamed ceilings, paned windows, a loft above the living room, and a swimming pool, as well as a guest house. Thick pine and flowering cherry trees surrounded the property, which included a 3,200-square-foot, one-story primary residence and the 2,000-square-foot guest cottage. The estate was located on over three acres and had a private drive in Benedict Canyon, a region west of Hollywood in the Santa Monica Mountains that overlooks Beverly Hills and Bel Air. French actress Michelle Morgan purchased the property in November 1941. Morgan, whose real name was Simone Roussel, worked for RKO Radio Pictures, and she purchased that farmhouse in Benedict Canyon. She added the swimming pool to the property that year. Morgan only lived there for about two years before returning to France. In 1943, Dr. Hartley Dewey and his wife purchased the property. The couple rented it out to Lillian Gish in 1946 when she was filming Duel in the Sun. Gish sued the couple later that year, claiming they violated an OPA rent ceiling and were overcharging her. In the early 1960s, Rudolf Altabelli, a music and film industry talent manager, bought the house and frequently rented out the property. Residents include Cary Grant and Dion Cannon, which was reportedly their honeymoon nest in 1965, Henry Fonda, Mark Lindsay, and Samantha Egger. Between May 1966 and January 1969, couple Terry Melcher, the son of actress Doris Day and his girlfriend, actress Candace Bergen, and a roommate, as well as Melcher's talent manager, Roger Hart, lived at the residence. In late 1968, Charles Manson visited the house while Melcher and Bergen lived there. Charles Manson was born Charles Mills Maddox on November 12, 1934, to a 16-year-old Kathleen Maddox in Cincinnati, Ohio. Manson probably never knew his biological father. Before Manson's birth, Maddox married William Eugene Manson, 
a laborer at a dry cleaning business. Maddox often went on drinking sprees with her brother Luther, leaving Charles with multiple babysitters. On April 30, 1937, the couple divorced after William alleged gross neglect of duty by Maddox. Charles retained William's last name, Manson. Manson's mother was arrested and spent time in and out of jail. His troubled life started early as well, and he would also spend most of his time locked up. Manson was released from prison on March 21, 1967. At that point, he had spent more than half of his 32 years in prisons and other institutions. He told authorities that prison had become his home, and he requested permission to stay. Less than a month after his 1967 release, Manson moved to Berkeley from Los Angeles, which technically was a probation violation. At this time, Manson would first take LSD and start to use it frequently. He found inspiration from the free love philosophy in the Haight-Ashbury during the Summer of Love. He began preaching his philosophy based on a mixture of the novel Stranger in a Strange Land, the Bible, Scientology, Dale Carnegie, and the Beatles, which quickly earned him a following that he would call his family. In time, the core members of Manson's family included Charles Tex Watson, a musician and a former actor, Bobby Boussoulet, a former musician and a porn actor, and Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Leslie Van Houten. The Manson family developed into a doomsday cult when Manson became fixated on the idea of an imminent apocalyptic race war between America's black population and the white population. Manson told them that the black people would rise up and kill all white people, except for Manson and his family. He proclaimed Helter Skelter, taken from a song on the Beatles' recently released White Album, to refer to this upcoming race war. Manson had been affiliated with Beach Boy Dennis Wilson for a short period of time and hoped to use Melcher, a record producer, to make a studio album. Melcher was not impressed with Manson and effectively dismissed him. In January 1969, Melcher and Bergen broke up and moved out of the residence, with Melcher relocating to Malibu. In February 1969, director Roman Polanski and his wife, actress Sharon Tate, began renting the home from Altabelli. The lease was for one year, starting on February 15, 1969, at the cost of $1,500 per month. On the night of August 8th and into August 9th, 1969, Tex Watson drove fellow Manson family members, Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian, and Patricia Krenwinkel to the base of 10,050 Cielo Drive. Watson claims Charles Manson had instructed him to go to the house and totally destroy everyone in it and to do it as gruesome as you can. Manson told the women to do as Watson instructed them. The occupants at 10,050 Cielo Drive that evening were 33-year-old Wojtek Frykowski, a childhood friend of Roman Polanski's. Frykowski grew up in Poland and studied chemistry. 
he became bar friends with Polanski while hanging around film studios in Poland. He worked as a lifeguard on Polanski's first film, Knife in the Water, and ultimately moved to California where he met his girlfriend, Abigail Folger. 26-year-old Abigail Folger was Frykowski's girlfriend and the heiress to the Folger's coffee fortune. She graduated from Harvard with a master's degree in art history and worked at a Berkeley art museum before moving to Los Angeles in 1968. Folger threw herself into activism, doing volunteer social work for an urban welfare program and working for a racially charged city council campaign. She and Frykowski spent most of the spring and summer of 1969 house-sitting for Polanski and Tate. Tate returned from overseas work at the end of the summer, but Polanski invited Folger and Frykowski to keep living there through August. 35-year-old Jay Sebring, a Birmingham, Alabama native and a Korean War Navy veteran. He became a noted celebrity hairstylist during the 1960s by importing many European fashion trends to Los Angeles. In addition, he did hair for several movies and is credited with inventing the entire men's hair industry. Between 1964 and 1966, he dated Sharon Tate, and they remained very close after her marriage to Polanski. And then... 26-year-old Sharon Tate, a Texas pageant girl from an army family. She broke into acting while attending high school in Italy. She'd made a name for herself as a fashion model and a comedic actress when she married Roman Polanski in January 1968. She was eight and a half months pregnant with her first child, a boy she named Paul Richard Polanski. Roman Polanski, iconic movie director, was away in Europe working on a film. The four friends had just come back from dinner at the nearby El Coyote Cafe earlier that evening and were settling in for the night. Frykowski was on the couch in the living room, Folger in her bedroom reading a book, while Tate and Sebring were sitting on the edge of her bed in the main bedroom. It was a hot summer night, about 90 degrees Fahrenheit. Also present on the property that night were William Garretson, the caretaker Altabelli hired, originally from Ohio, and Stephen Parent, an 18-year-old recent high school graduate. Parent was a native of Los Angeles. He loved music and playing the guitar. He worked two jobs over the summer to pay for a community college in the fall. He tried to sell small electronics and mechanical devices to friends to supplement income. Parent drove to Benedict Canyon and arrived at 10,050 Cielo Drive at around 11.45 p.m. He had hoped to sell a Sony AM-FM Digimatic clock to Garretson, a recent acquaintance. He demonstrated the clock radio for Garretson, but he was not interested. Parent then called Gerald Friedman, a friend for whom he would build a stereo, and hung around long enough to drink a can of beer that Garretson gave him. Finally, Stephen Parent said goodnight to Garretson and left the guest house around midnight. Watson and three other women arrived at Cielo Drive just past midnight on August 9th. Watson climbed a telephone pole near the gated entrance and cut the phone line to the house. They backed their car to the bottom of the hill that led to the estate 
and walked back up to the house. They worried that the gate might be electrified or equipped with an alarm, so they climbed a brushy embankment to the right of the gate and entered the grounds. Headlights approached them from within the property, and Watson ordered the women to lie in the bushes. Then he stepped out and ordered the approaching driver to halt. Stephen Parent, just leaving Garretson, approached the gate in his father's 1966 white AMC Rambler. He went down the parking area and stopped to push the button that operated the electronic gate. As Parent rolled down his window, he met a dark figure who shouted, Halt! Watson leveled a 22 caliber revolver at Parent, who begged him not to hurt him, claiming he would not say anything. Watson lunged at Parent with a knife, giving him a defensive slash wound on the palm of his hand that severed tendons and tore the young man's wristwatch off. Then he shot him four times in the chest and abdomen, killing him. Watson then ordered the women to help push the car farther up the driveway. Watson next cut the screen of a window and told Kasabian to keep watch down by the gate. She walked over to Parent's car and waited. Watson removed the screen, entered through the window, and let Atkins and Krenwinkel in through the front door. He whispered to Atkins and awoke Frykowski, who was sleeping on the living room couch. Watson kicked him in the head. When Frykowski asked who he was and what he was doing there, Watson replied, I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business. On Watson's direction, Atkins found the house's three other occupants with Krenwinkel's help and forced them into the living room. People frequently came and went to the residence to party and confused the occupants in their bedrooms when the intrusion began. Watson began to tie Tate and Sebring together by their necks with a rope he had brought, and then slung it over one of the living room's ceiling beams. Sebring protested the murderer's rough treatment of the pregnant Tate, so Watson shot him. Folger was taken momentarily back to her bedroom for her purse, and she gave the murderers $70. Watson then stabbed Sebring seven times, killing him. Frykowski's hands were bound with a towel, but he freed himself and began struggling with Atkins, who stabbed at his legs with a knife. He fought his way out the front door and onto the porch, but Watson caught up with him, struck him over the head with a gun multiple times, stabbed him repeatedly, and shot him twice. Kasabian heard horrifying sounds and moved towards the house from her position in the driveway. She told Atkins that someone was coming in an attempt to stop the murders. Folger escaped from Krenwinkel and fled out a bedroom door to the pool area from inside the house. Krenwinkel pursued her and caught her on the front lawn, where she stabbed her and tackled her to the ground. Watson then helped finish her off. Her assailants stabbed her a total of 28 times. Frykowski struggled across the lawn, but Watson continued to stab him, killing him, too. Frykowski suffered 51 stab wounds and had also been struck 13 times in the head with the butt of Watson's gun, which bent at the barrel and broke off one side of the gun grip, 
which was later recovered at the scene. Inside the house, Tate pleaded to be allowed to live long enough to give birth and offered herself as a hostage in an attempt to save the life of her unborn child, but to no avail. Both Adkins and Watson stabbed Tate 16 times, killing her. They stabbed her first in the heart and the chest, and then in the back repeatedly. As she died, Sharon Tate called out for her mother. According to Watson, Manson had told the women to leave a sign, something witchy. Adkins wrote pig on the front white door in Tate's blood. Adkins claimed she did this to copycat the murder scene of Gary Hinman to get Manson family member Bobby Boussoulet out of jail, who was in custody for that murder. Boussoulet wrote political piggy in Hinman's blood on his wall after stabbing him to death just a month earlier. The family left a pair of horn-rimmed glasses at the scene, which at one point was considered a crucial piece of evidence by police but was later dismissed as irrelevant. The glasses were a false clue to start what Manson called his helter-skelter, the race war. Following their crimes on Cielo Drive, the family attempted to leave the area as quickly as possible. Manson instructed the group to collect $600, but they forgot. After cleaning themselves off with a garden hose, the family drove down the winding Mulholland Drive disposing of their incriminating possessions, one at a time. The gruesome scene was discovered by a housekeeper the following morning. The media dubbed the crime a bizarre ritualistic slaying and was a media sensation. We have a weird homicide. In a scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird religious rite, five persons, including actress Sharon Tate, were found dead at the home of Miss Tate and her husband, screen director Roman Polyansky. Miss Tate, who starred in Valley of the Dolls, was eight months pregnant and was found in a bikini-type nightgown with a rope around her neck attached to the body of a man. Two bodies inside, two bodies outside. Among the other victims were Hollywood hairstylist Jay Sebring and coffee heiress Abigail Folger. Authorities would allow no one in an unofficial capacity inside the posh $200,000 home in the hills overlooking Los Angeles. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines cut. The bodies had been dead about 12 hours. They were discovered this morning by a maid who ran screaming to neighbors. One officer summed up the murders when he said, In all my years, I have never seen anything like this before. The caretaker, Garretson, was awake the whole night. He lived in the carriage house and was unaware of the murders just outside. He only found out what happened when police showed up banging on his front door the following morning. Initially, he was the primary suspect but was later deemed that he never heard a thing with the music on and the distance of the carriage house to the main house. Garretson moved back to his native Ohio after the events. A few months later, Altabelli sued Polanski for illegally permitting Life magazine to photograph and publish the home following the murders. He claimed that those photos damaged the property value and contended the images particularly the front door where Pig was written in blood, would prevent him from selling the property. 
He moved into the house just three weeks after the murders and resided there until 1988. Altabelli said that he felt safe, secure, loved, and beauty during an interview while living there. The house sold next to John Prell, a real estate investor. In 1992, Prell sold the property to Alvin Weintraub, another real estate investor. The final resident of the original house was the musician Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails. Reznor rented the house from 1992 and set up a recording studio there. The studio, dubbed Pig, about Atkins writing Pig in Tate's blood on the front door, was the site of recording session for most of the Nine Inch Nails album, The Downward Spiral, from 1994. The band also recorded the EP Broken and filmed the video for Gave Up at 10,050 Cielo Drive. In addition, Marilyn Manson recorded sections of the album Portrait of an American Family at the in-house studio in 1992. Reznor moved out in December 1993, later explaining there was too much history in that house for him to handle. Reznor took the house's front door with him when he moved out, installing it at Nothing Studios, his new recording studio and record label headquartered in New Orleans. Nothing Studios was later sold, and the facade of the building changed. However, the front door Reznor removed from 10,050 Cielo Drive is currently preserved in possession of Christopher Moore, a New Orleans artist who acquired it from the building owner. After renting out the house, Alvin Weintraub demolished it that year in 1994. In 1996, the newly constructed home was completed, which he named Villa Bella, and he obtained a new address for the property, 10,066 Cielo Drive. The new residence is entirely different from the original home that once occupied the site. It is an 18,000-square-foot Mediterranean-style mansion with eight bedrooms, 18 bathrooms, and a 16-car garage. When the property was listed for sale in 1998, Weintraub stated, We went to great pains to get rid of everything. There's no house, no dirt, no blade of grass remotely connected to Sharon Tate. By 2010, Hollywood producer Jeff Franklin owned the property. He commented on the property to Architectural Digest. What I fell in love with here was the setting, the view, the privacy, and the amount of flat land. But he complained that the design of the house was poorly conceived. The property is currently on the market, as of March 2022, for $85 million. Today, European-style farmhouse is gone. Left in its wake is a massive, allegedly poorly conceived mega mansion. Per the original owner, nothing attached to that night in 1969 remains. We know that no one will fully ever understand the horror and terror endured that night, but it all centered around one man, Charles Manson. In 1970, the state of California tried Manson for murder with co-defendants Leslie Van Houten, Susan Atkins, and Patricia Krenwinkel, 
co-defendant Tex Watson was later tried after being extradited from Texas. The trial began on July 15, 1970, and in it of itself was a complete circus, with Manson and the family members behaving in odd manners. Each of the three female defendants, Adkins, Van Houten, and Krenwinkel, took the stand. They provided graphic details of the murder and testified Manson was not involved. They had committed the crimes to help Boussoulet get out of jail, where he was held for a murder. They testified that the murders were intended to be copycat crimes, similar to the Hinman killing. Adkins, Krenwinkel, and Van Houten claimed they did this under the direction of the state's prime witness, Linda Kasabian. They did not express remorse for the killings. On March 29, 1971, the jury sentenced all four defendants to death. When the female defendants were led into the courtroom, each of them had shaved their heads, as had Manson. Following the 1972 decision of California v. Anderson, California's death sentences were ruled unconstitutional, thus reversing the sentences for Manson and his family members. Instead, they received the alternative punishment of life imprisonment. Manson died from cardiac arrest resulting from respiratory failure brought on by colon cancer on November 19, 2017, at age 83. Susan Adkins died of natural causes on September 24, 2009, at the Central California's Women Facility in Chowchilla, California, at age 61. Watson, Krenwinkel, and Van Houten are still alive and still incarcerated. So why did this happen? It centers around one man, Charles Manson, a disturbed criminal and a drug addict. When Manson was released from prison, he took advantage of young, lost souls during the Summer of Love. While they're complicit in their actions, the family members are also victims in their own way. They believe Manson's lies, a man older than most of his members by at least a decade. He got them hooked on drugs in this popular counterculture, the hippie lifestyle. Manson also was in awe of the lifestyle that Dennis Wilson had. Dennis Wilson was a member of the prevalent music group, The Beach Boys. Manson wanted to be a rock star too. And when Terry Melcher shut him down, he essentially snapped and decided to unleash his helter-skelter, starting with the man he felt rejected him. Unfortunately, Manson did not realize Melcher had moved out. The location also plays a pivotal role in this event. All of the victims of this crime were simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. There was no way for anyone to know that Terry Melcher had a crazy man after him. Even though Melcher was not the victim Manson likely intended, none of the family members were connected to the residence occupants that night and didn't care who was there. They simply just wanted to please Manson, and they were probably high on drugs at the time. The location was also private, and it was easy to break into, which didn't help the situation either. What happened that night will never change. The lasting imprint of that terrible evening will linger forever in the Hollywood Hills, with or without the original property.
Thank you for listening to Nightmare Houses. For more information, including photos and a complete list of references, please visit www.nightmarehouses.com and you can find us on social media at Nightmare Houses on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Until next time, goodbye.